So we are in our second week of a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We began last week, we began the series with, with a sort of introduction to the Ten Commandments and how they are so foundational to much of our morals and ethics that we have. And we took a look at the first commandment, which was, you shall have no other gods before me. And we took a look at how this is so foundational to the, the other nine commandments. Um, really, it came down to the fact that if you're worshipping the wrong God, then it doesn't matter how sincere your worship is, you will always be misguided and ultimately your worship will be worthless. So that first commandment really underpins the other nine. And so today we're looking at the second commandment, which we just, we just read there. And, you know, if the first commandment was about not worshipping the wrong God, well, we could say that the second commandment is about not worshipping in the wrong way. And as we look at this commandment this morning, we can, we can basically, we can break it down into four parts. Four parts. And this would be, we find there's a rule, there's a reason, there's a warning, and there's a promise. Okay, so listen to those again. There's a rule, there's a reason, there's a warning, and there is a promise. So let's begin by looking at the rule that God lays out here. And he begins by saying, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or the waters below. And really, that's that's God's all-encompassing way of saying, basically, you're not to make an image of anything to try and represent him. And here he's, he's specifically referring to creating idols that we might bow down to and worship. Um, so what, what does it mean to create a false image or an idol? Well, in the days of ancient Israel, this meant creating literal uh, stone or wood or metal little figures that were used to represent various gods. Remember last week we talked about how a lot of the surrounding nations, they believed there was all kinds of gods. Gods for fertility, God for the harvest, God for war. There was a God for everything. And people would would think, well, if we pray to this God when we have certain needs, and if we can appease this God by giving them food and sacrifices and all this kind of thing, then the the gods will answer our prayers. And so they would create these little idols to represent them. And they would carry them with them. They would put them in their homes. They would bow down to them. They would worship them. And if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, um, you'll know that a a great deal of the Old Testament is about Israel constantly wandering away from God and being enticed by, by false gods of neighboring tribes and nations. And then God disciplines them and he calls them back. Then there's a period of obedience and prosperity for Israel. And then the cycle begins all over again. So, so in some senses, there's a cyclical element to idolatry. And my question is, is it really any different today? Is it really any different today? Do we have idolatry in our life that is cyclical? Do you sometimes feel like you're the, the hamster on the, on the wheel, the spinning wheel, right? With the sins and the idolatry in your life. Do you, do you feel like sometimes you're okay for a while, right? You have something you struggle with. A sin that every, each of us has our weaknesses, right? The, the sins that kind of plague us the most. And maybe you find for a while that you're doing okay. 
and you're doing good with the Lord, you're having a good spell, and then, and then you fall off the wagon and the whole cycle starts again. Anybody been there? Yeah? Well, you just feel like you're going round and round. Hey, I'm good for a while. Yes. Okay. And bump, you trip up and you're off into this cycle again. Or maybe you've never really thought about having idols in your life. Perhaps it just seems like a very alien concept. I mean, you don't have any little graven images you're carrying with you, do you? Any little statues that you bow down to and pray to, right? I doubt, maybe one or two of you do, I don't know, but probably most of us, we don't have these little idols, right? If you do, come see me afterwards. <laughs> but you know what I mean? We, it's, it's almost an alien concept. I mean, we, we don't have any of those things. I mean, what's the issue? I mean, surely idols, they're just for primitive societies, right? I mean, we're, we're more enlightened here in the West, aren't we? Well, are we? We have to understand what idolatry is before we can identify it in our own lives. This is how Tim Keller describes idolatry. He says, quote, Anything you look to more than Christ for a sense of acceptability, joy, significance, hope, and security is by definition your God. Something you adore and serve with your whole life and heart. If you try to achieve your sense of self by performance, then you are putting something in the place of Christ as a savior. That is an idol by definition. He continues, the sign of idolatry is always inordinate anxiety, inordinate anger, and inordinate discouragement. Idols are good things, such as family, achievement, work, your career, romance, your talent. So they're good things that we turn into ultimate things in order to get the significance and joy we need. Then they drive us into the ground because we have to have them. If we lose a good thing, it makes us sad. If we lose an idol, it devastates us. What would devastate you if you lost it? So what Keller's saying there is he's saying an idol, it can be a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing that devastates us if we lose it. And that also we use our idols to replace Jesus in our lives for our meaning and significance and joy. You know, the funny thing is that we, we actually, as human beings, we naturally default to idolatry. Do you know why? Because we're designed to worship. Each and every one of us, we were created to worship. We really were. Even if you think you're the most unreligious person in the world, you are still worshiping something. And it's inherent to our humanity. And of course, we were created and designed to worship our creator, to worship God. But we have this habit of replacing God with other things in our lives that we worship instead. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We're really good at producing idols. Each of our hearts has a a nice idol factory in it, churning them out. You could say that idolatry is worship gone awry. 
that idolatry is misplaced worship. So what are some of the idols in our lives? Some may feel obvious, but many perhaps do not. Let's just, let's, let's call a few out. Well, our work can be an idol. Do you place all your meaning and significance in your work? Is that more important than God? Do you um, spend inordinate hours every week neglecting everything else because you've got to work, you've got to work, you've got to work? Here's one, family. Do you know your family can be an idol? Sarah and I are acutely aware of this with our two little girls who we just, we adore and we know they were a miraculous gift from God. But you know what? We have to be careful sometimes that they don't replace the place of Jesus in our life. We love them and they're a good thing, right? They're a good thing. But they should not be the ultimate thing in our lives. That should be reserved for God. What about body image? Okay? Some of us can be obsessed with how we look physically. You see people who exercise and exercise and exercise. They're obsessed with how they look, taking selfies every five seconds. Has that become more important than God in our lives? Has that, has that been placed above God because we're obsessed with our physical appearance? What about politics? Some people have elevated politics to, to a whole new level where everything is about politics. And here's, here's a, a real sign that somebody has made politics an idol in their life. They are very unhappy, disconcerted people. Nothing's ever good enough. The government's never doing enough or it's never doing too little. And there's a constant just aggravation because politics is their God. Instead, if they realize that, you know what, Jesus is still on the throne no matter whether Democrats, the Republicans, or whoever is in office, the Lord is still in charge. What about ideology? Perhaps you've got some ideology you're stuck on, some social uh, justice issue. Social justice is a good thing. But when it kicks God to the side and becomes more important than God and what his word says, then you may have turned it into an idol. Perhaps one of the biggest idols in people's lives is identity. Where are we putting our identity these days? Is it in our work? Is it in our family? Is it in our sexuality? Are we using that as the defining place of our identity? How do you introduce yourself? Do you say, I am a child of the living God? Products of God's mercy and grace, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that how we introduce ourselves? Not many of us, right? But ultimately, that's where our true identity is. It's in Jesus. It's not in your work. It's not in your job. It's not in your family. It's not in your sexuality. It's not in your, you name it. Whatever you want to place there is an idol. Your identity is in Jesus. That's where it's found. And that's where you will truly be content. Perhaps your idols, entertainment, TV, video games, social media. How much time do you spend on those? You know, time is one of the most valuable commodities we have in life, isn't it? 
And if you want to see where your idols lie, there's two great places to start. One, look at your pocketbook, your bank account. What do you spend most of your money on? And then two, look at what do you spend most of your time doing? That will really quickly show where the priorities are in your life. Social media, the classic one. You know, and in a funny way, I was saying none of us carry little idols around with us. But actually we do, don't we? Yeah? It's about, just about a good size for an idol as well. We can tuck it in our pocket, pull it out whenever we need. We can go to it, hit the screen, look at whatever we want to worship, and stare at it for, for hours. This can be an idol, can't it? You want to know if this is an idol in your life? Well, tell me about the panic you feel if you lose your iPhone or your smartphone. Anybody felt that panic? Yeah? <gasps> Where did I put it? What about the panic you feel if you, if you go to the bathroom without your phone? <laughs> huh? Ever felt that panic? Now what are you supposed to do? Sit there with your own thoughts? What a ridiculous idea. You have to actually think for a moment on your own without the aid of a screen? <laughs> but they do sort of, they sneak in there, don't they? Taking the priority in our lives. Maybe it's a talent, right? As a, as, as a musician, I know all about making your talent your idol. Maybe you're really good at something and you become obsessed with it. And that's all it's about. Sports is another classic one, right? We just had the Super Bowl recently, right? And I reckon there's, there may be a few who idolize sports in their life, right? We kind of idolize it in our country, don't we? I've said this before, but I don't think they should be called stadiums. They should be called sports temples. Because it's where people go to worship. They jump up and down, get super excited about an inflatable piece of leather being put over a white line. And that is the greatest thing in life. They will stand, they will cheer, they will throw beer at each other, you name it. But you mention worshipping Jesus. I uh, worship Jesus, yeah. holy, holy. You know? We can get so excited about sports, but when it comes to the one true living God, all of a sudden we're very shy and quiet about it. I could go on. There's so many. I will name one more that is, is a little more subtle, and that's sometimes we can, religious works and ministries can be an idol, can't they? Right? Do, do we come to a place where we're so possessive of something, so possessive of a ministry, this is mine. I don't want anybody else involved because I want to be the one who does it, and I want to be the one who gets credit for it. Instead of thinking, what is best for the church here? We can use what seemingly is a good thing to be an idol in our lives. There's a great uh, worksheet that I found which um, has a bunch of sentences that are prefaced with life only has meaning slash I only have worth if... And it names all kinds of things in our life. So, while there are many idols in our everyday lives, there's actually another way that we can create a false image and worship that image. And that's in the way that we imagine God. This is a big one, folks, because it's very subtle because we don't realize it. But the way we imagine God can be a way of creating a false God that we worship. 
Now, imaginations, they can be wonderful things, and they are, aren't they? It, it's, it's our imaginations that have given us some of the best stories, some of the best literature, works of art, and music, and movies that we've ever had. It's our imagination um, that has given us so many gifts. Much of our technology and scientific discovery began with the human imagination, asking the question, what if? But our imaginations can also be deceptive. Can't they? They can be misleading. They can be erroneous. We can all imagine things that aren't true. Just watch any of the talking heads on the news outlets. Right? That's what they do all day. They speculate. They imagine. They've really become places that just spout opinion rather than news and facts. A lot of them, aren't they? And that's because they're letting imaginations run riot. And guess what? We love to imagine God, don't we? And in one sense, that's not a bad thing. I think God, God wants us to think about him. He wants to be personal to us. But the danger in imagining God, rather than basing our knowledge on what Scripture says about God, is that we create a God to our own liking and suitability. We create a God who who never offends or challenges us or shows us how we need to change. We like a God that just affirms everything we we do. A God that doesn't cause us any discomfort in life or perhaps to look at our lives. Folks, that's no God at all. Again, Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, You might just be worshipping an idealized version of yourself. Think about that. Do we create a God who really is just like the best person we could be? I think that's how I'd like my God to be. He's like me, but just a bit better. He never gets angry. He never says a bad word. He's kind and generous. That's my God. A classic example of, of how we do this is of how many people envision and imagine Jesus, right? If I asked you all individually, I bet you would all have your own personal idea of what Jesus is like, right? And it would probably be based off a mix of things. It would be based off some stuff you've read in the Bible. And then a, a lot of it would probably be based on your own subjective ideas of what Jesus is like might be based on movies, from things other people have said, pictures, paintings, whatever. But ironically, while, while plenty of non-Christians have an incomplete and an inaccurate idea of Jesus, guess what so many of us in the church do as well? In Colossians book of Colossians, we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So we're told that Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. And yet we let our imagination take over and imagine that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. You ever heard anybody say that? Well, I, I, I'm not into that, that you know, the, the God of the Old Testament. Oh, he's all about anger and wrath and judgment and all that. But, but you know, I like the New Testament. I like Jesus. 
Yeah, Jesus is cool. Because he's all about love and compassion. and Yeah, yes. I'm all for that. Well, how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as gentle, as mild, as meek, as kind, as forgiving, as loving? Good, so do I. And Jesus is all of those things embodied. But you know what? That's only half the truth of who Jesus is. The same Jesus whipped tradesmen out of the temple. The same Jesus called out the Pharisees, and he called them some pretty harsh names. The same Jesus cursed the fig tree. Do we forget about that side of Jesus? Because it makes us a little uncomfortable. J.I. Packer says the following. He says, In Jesus, as in all God's self-disclosure throughout the Bible, there is a combination of pity with purity, passion with power, and slowness to anger with severity of judgment that should humble us to the roots of our being. But are we realistic enough to see this? Packer goes on, he says, Or has our imagination betrayed us once again? Do we like to think that God is light as well as love? Great and terrible as well as steadfast in love? Maybe not. But this is how he is. And we'll be tired as if we are foolish and inattentive enough to imagine him different. End quote. Do you see? Do you see how we can create a Jesus that suits our needs and our preferences? That we're creating our own God. We're going to a pick a mix store and say, I'll have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit. Uh, I don't really like licorice, so I'm going to leave that out. Um, yeah? I, I do like licorice, by the way. <laughs> we have to remember that the, the, the Jesus we love and worship, who truly is God, He is loving, He is compassionate. He adores us. We are his creation, and that's why he gave himself upon the cross for us. We can't even begin to fathom the love he has for us. But we also need to remember that this Jesus is the one and same God who rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. They're not two different gods. It's the same God who hates sin, who will do anything to get sin out of our lives. It's the same Jesus, the same God. And to imagine him otherwise is to create a false God, an idol in your life. Don't make a false God out of Jesus. So those are, those are the rules that God's talking about. Don't worship false idols. Don't create a false image of me. I don't believe this means we can't ever have paintings of Jesus or represent anything like that. No. He's talking about what's behind it. Are you using those images to worship? Are you kneeling in front of a picture and worshiping this image of Jesus rather than who Jesus is? That's when it gets problematic. I don't think it means we can't draw a picture of Jesus. So now we go on to the reason. Remember I said there was four things. Rule, reason, um, warning, and promise. So... What's the reason God says this? Well, he says, because I am a jealous God. Hang on a minute. He's a, he's a jealous God? Well, that doesn't quite fit in with my idea of what God should be like either. How about you? Really? He's jealous? 
Isn't, isn't jealousy a bad thing? Well, we generally think that jealousy is a bad thing. And it certainly can be, no question. But we have to be careful that we don't confuse jealousy with envy. They are different. And when God says he's a jealous God in this context, it means that He is a God of zeal and burning passion and love for us all. And that he won't accept anything but our complete devotion. The best way I can think of this is, this kind of jealousy is, is the jealousy that a husband has for his wife or a wife has for their husband. Think about it. Any of you that are married or have been married, if you turned to your spouse or your spouse turned to you and said, um, honey, I, I love you. you. You are so important in my life. Um, but I, I am seeing a few other people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we get together once or but, but you are precious to me. You are so precious. But there's about two or th- other, three other people in my life that are also quite special. And I, I, I do want to spend time with them as well, okay? Are we good? You'd be jealous, wouldn't you? The thought of your spouse being with somebody else, of sharing the things that only you are supposed to share together, would create jealousy in you. And that would be a good jealousy. It's a healthy, protective jealousy. It says you care. It's not a possessive jealousy. But it is a jealousy that says you are mine and should be only mine alone. And that's the kind of jealousy God has for you. He loves you so much that he's saying, I don't want you worshipping all this, this tribe. All these false gods who can't bring you anything. They can't bring you happiness and peace and joy. Only I can do that. And I demand your love. That's why he's a jealous God. So we move on to the warning. And it's because of God's great love and his his jealous love for us that there comes a warning. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, it's easy to misunderstand this verse. And I remember when I first read it, I was like, well, that seems a a little bit harsh. Right? Because um, we we start to think, oh, it seems a bit unfair to punish the children for the the sins of the parents. Now, can there be generational curses? Yes, I believe there can. But there's one very important thing to know. And that's if you are in Jesus Christ then you no longer have to be bound by the power of a generational curse. Do you hear that? You, no long, you don't have to be, you are not defined by what your parents did or what your grandparents did if you are in Jesus Christ. You are a new creation in Christ and can claim Jesus' power and victory over any generational curse you might be facing. I want you to hear that. It's so important because so many people, so many believers walk in this fatalistic attitude of like, well, you know what? I, um, sexual abuse runs in my family, so it's just going to continue. Or my father was an alcoholic, so I'm bound to be an alcoholic. No, you're a new creation. It stops with you. You are the new trendsetter in your family, not what has been done before. Let's get back to this. What is this? What's going on here with this generational thing? Let's take a closer look at the verse. Because the verse actually says, 
Um, like I say, our general assumption is, well, this seems unfair on the children. But look at what the sentence actually says. It says, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's very important. The children have been raised to hate God also. They're not innocent because they too hate God. And we have to remember, children are not automatically angels or innocent because they are children. Listen to how the NLT, the New Living Translation, says it. It says, I lay down, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. So in one sense, this this commandment, it's also a wake-up call for parents. You see, because how, as if you are a parent, how you worship and love God or don't will have a profound effect on your child's life. You are their primary teacher and example for what it means to love God. And it's funny because some of the parents I hear complain about their children going away from the Lord and leaving the Lord are the same ones who signed them up for Sunday morning sports. It's like, what do you expect? You're sending a message. This is more important than worshiping together as a community. We need to make a stand. Show people what's truly important in life. And this, by the way, I, if you are a parent and you have a child who, who's, who's not following the Lord anymore, this, please hear my heart. This is not about laying a guilt trip on you. Okay, there, We can do everything we can to raise a child And there comes a point where they're going to make their own decisions and we have no control over that. So please do not feel good. What I'm I'm talking about here is parents who knowingly choose not to raise their children with a love for God. Who deliberately turn away. That's what I'm talking about here. So please, please hear my heart there. And finally, we get to the promise. And as is often the case with God. His promise are almost so much more abundant than his warnings. God says, while a curse may last for three or four generations, what does he say? His love will last a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. That thousand really is a basically way of, a biblical way of saying forever. So where there may, there may be warnings and curses for three or four generations, his love lasts forever of those who love him. We have to hang on to that promise of God that his love for you and I will last forever. So what do we do with all this? I know I've thrown a lot at you this morning. How do we deal with the idols in our own lives? Well, as is my way. I have a few points for you. So number one, call them out and repent of them. I just defined what an idol can be. And you know what? I know for a fact you all know some idols in your life right now. I know the Lord has been speaking to you through this service, through this sermon, that little things have popped into your head. Oh yeah, that's true. I kind of do this. Call them out. Repent, say, Lord, I lay this at your feet. 
I lay this idol at your feet and I give it to you. And I put you back where you should be in my life, on the throne. Number two, incorporate fasting into your life. Fasting. We tend to think that fasting is only about uh, abstaining from food or drink or something like that, right? But you know, there are many, many ways you can fast. Fasting is essentially taking something out of your life that has too much prominence in your life and deliberately withholding yourself from it so that you can focus more on God. So maybe you need to do a media fast. Maybe you need to do... um, a TV fast. Maybe you need to do a social media fast. Maybe there's so many different ways you can fast. It doesn't have to be about food. But set some time aside. Start off easy. Maybe you do half a day. Maybe you do a couple of hours. Maybe you can do three days or a week. Whatever you decide you can start with, start somewhere and fast and use that time to spend with God and see what he says to you. God speaks so powerfully to us in times of fasting, when we do it with the right heart. Number three, rededicate yourself to God. Declare, I am yours. You know, we were created as image bearers of the one true God. Do you remember that? God created us in his image. And so you carry his image. And our true purpose is to be God's representatives here on earth. We're image bearers of the living God. And finally, give back to God what belongs to him. John Calvin said, God cannot be represented by a picture or sculpture since he has intended his likeness to appear in us. Remember when the Pharisees approached Jesus and they had a coin, a Roman coin? And they said, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus' answer was just pure genius. He said, let me look at the coin. He looked at the coin and he said, whose image is that on the coin? And they said, it's Caesar's. And what did he say? Give to Caesar's what belongs to Caesar's. And give to the Lord what belongs to the Lord. Your image, you carry the image of the Lord. Give yourself back to him. And he will use you powerfully. Let's pray. Father, we want to declare today that we worship you and we worship you alone. I ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for the ways that we have elevated other things in our life above you. I pray, Lord, you bring them to our heart, bring them to the surface. Let's call them out and we repent, Lord, and we look back to you. I pray this week you would speak to us. Are there places that where we can fast and remove hindrances from our life and our relationship with you? And Lord, I just pray that you would remind people that despite all these things happening in our lives, you love us. You love us so, so much. And it's your desire that we would find true happiness and contentment through you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.